Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. Thanks. Let's switch out here for you. Uh, before I get started, first, thank you for the wonderful introduction of Incozi and all the value that Incozi brings. It's great to to highlight that for non-members, but also to remind us as members what all is out there. We oftentimes forget it. The benefit that I actually like to call out most frequently, though, is the opportunity to connect with practitioners. Practitioners in your local domain, practitioners around the world. We've got a number of board members here, and I guarantee they're actually not here for me. One of them heard this talk four different times. <laughs> okay, The others know where they can find it online. They're here because they have the opportunity to connect with you. And I've been here for the past uh, week. I'll, I'll be here a little beyond this conference. It is wonderful to see the state of practice in South Africa, around the world, on different programs. There's always something to learn. And so as good as the artifacts are, the products that you can get from Incozi, even better is the opportunity to talk to people locally and connect with people either virtually or in person around the world. So, uh, so I'll plug that, and I'll also plug one other thing. Since it's election season, nomination season, uh, I highly encourage you to get involved. Uh, I also caution you about getting involved. 1997, I stood for election in the Washington metro area chapter, and I lost. Okay, nobody. I tell this story, and they're like, "No, that's not possible. Nobody can ever lose an Incozi election." <laughs> The answer is I did, but they got me involved, and I, I don't regret it for a minute. It's been a very, very busy but very, very rewarding 17 years. So you always meter what you do. You have the opportunity to choose what you do, but if you have the chance, do get involved. It makes a world of difference to yourself and to everybody else around you. So with that, let's move on to the presentation, Systems Engineering in Turbulent Times. The, uh, the so-called Chinese curse is, may you live in interesting times. And boy, do we. Now, we could talk about this from all sorts of perspectives, but we're systems engineers. So I'm going to try to bring a systems engineering perspective to this era that we live in, this time of change, this evolution that is happening oh so fast. But just to talk about it, that would be observational. That's not a whole lot of fun. What do we do about it? How do we actually adapt our process? How do we adopt, evolve, and hopefully ultimately excel if these truly are turbulent times? Because where there's change, where there's challenge, there's always opportunity. I'll try to be fast-paced. It's late in the evening. We'll try to keep it going. So, new domains and new challenges. Systems engineering emerged from stovepiped, isolated, long-lived system needs. Okay. You couldn't be more different than where we are today. It was almost all military aerospace. It was some telecommunication. Well, we still practice in military aerospace. We still practice in telecommunication. But we practice in medical. We practice in energy. We practice in automotive with cars driving themselves in the Las Vegas desert and on Mars. Okay. Changes around the world. These systems are interconnected. Some of them are long-lived with a 100-year life cycle from concept to retirement. Some of them are out of date by the time you can buy them in the store, like the cell phone on my hip. The only constant across all this is change and the ever-increasing pace of change, the change in what our customers want and the change in the technologies that we have to deliver it. 
Things are getting more complex. This is not a surprise to anybody in the room. We're used to seeing complex aircraft with 5,000 ECUs, 5,000 sensors. We're used to the complexity of cars increasing. It's not so much an automobile anymore as it's a mobile entertainment platform that entertains me while I get from place A to place B. But what amazes me here is the amount of sensors and software in the washer and dryer in my house. Really? But it's true. And it's not just static complexity. This kind of complexity we're used to. So we have the old aerosolian tree, the parts list, where we're building things from more and more parts. That's static complexity. We're not good at it, but we at least understand it. Now we have dynamic complexity. Our environment changes, our system changes, our behaviors evolve even as things are ongoing. Dynamic complexity we barely understand, we certainly can't deal with. But the good news is we're deeply respected and everybody gives us all the money we need to do our jobs. Yeah, right, right. We're the first one in line when they come for a budget cut. We're not volunteering, they're coming to us. All right. In the US, we talk about so-called sequestration. This was the poison pill that was designed that was so painful, nobody would ever be so stupid as to ingest it. I'm sorry to say we were. Okay? We underestimated our own stupidity. Since we couldn't agree upon a budget, we just devastated things across the board. But it's not just a U.S. problem. The Australians had a similar problem. Ultimately, their ruling party, six months from the end of term, realized, uh-oh, we promised a balanced budget by the time we left office, and we haven't done it. And they did across-the-board cuts. The difference between the Australians and the Americans is the Australians at least chose, we're going to terminate this project to save this one. The Americans just gutted everything. <laughs> this is a government problem, but it's, a, it's an industry problem as well. We are being asked to do more with less. And worse than that, it's the replanning, the fear, the uncertainty. Am I going to have the money next year to continue with my program? If I'm not sure that I am, I'm not sure how I'm going to act. So budget uncertainty makes things worse. And the problem space changes. Now, I could take this photo, unfortunately, from anywhere around the world. We could talk about the incident about in Canada's parliament yesterday. Uh, this particular photo I choose because it's on U.S. soil. It's the Boston Marathon bombing 18 months ago. For the Americans, it's an extremely traumatic event. It is the first time that this kind of event was perpetrated at a sporting event, which is classically an area of such joy and such celebration. And it's asymmetric warfare. Unfortunately, it's something we know all too well around the world. But at the same time we see the negative, we see some of the positives. Our solution space changes. Whether you believe that it helped find the perpetrators or not, crowdsourcing was used to help identify terrorists. Everybody now has a mobile sensor on their hips. And we're classically videotaping everything around us. And here you see, unfortunately, the young boy who lost his life, the terrorist who will stand trial, and what is believed to be one of the bombs. So as bad as the environment is, as much as the problem space changes, so does the solution space. The old story is that the calculators had more power than the man we put on the moon. 
then the iPhones had more power than the man we put on the moon. Now the greeting cards that will report, sorry, will record your greeting for your spouse or your mother has more power than the computer we used to land a man on the moon. Moore's Law helps us greatly, and I'm sure NASA would have loved to pay that price tag rather than the one they did to MIT for that computer. Technology gets better, and new technologies come all the time. Whether you believe 3D printing is or is not a disruptive technology isn't important. The fact is new technologies continue to emerge, and they allow us to tackle this ever-changing problem space. Ultimately, we've got change going on both sides, and we've got a very, very rapid change. And that's why I characterize this as a time of turbulence. We're asked to engineer very short-lived systems, very long-lived systems. We're asked to engineer systems of all different life, sorry, all different scales, all different domains. Okay. Cots, gots, and reuse, we're trying to do more systems integration now than ever. We don't have time to engineer everything new. We have to reuse things. And we've gone beyond complex. We've gone beyond complicated. We've gone to adaptive systems. We've gone to autonomous systems. We've gone to things that are just plain emergent behavior. We don't know how to deal with them yet. Through it all, there's change, and there's change that we can't control in the problem space, in the solution technology, and in the constraints. That's the world we live in. So you have two choices. You can be the proverbial ostrich and put your head in the sand and wish for the old days. Or you can try to combat it. What are we going to do? How can we adapt? How can we change ourselves as practitioners? And how can we change the practice? And I want to give us six concrete tactics that I think will help us. And ultimately, I think we can do more than adapt. I think we can ultimately excel. We can make this our age. Step one is build on our foundation. Believe it or not, everything that I just talked about is why systems engineering emerged. Okay? We emerged to deal with complexity. We emerged to deal with problems. We emerged to deal with new technologies, to bring it together, to solve different challenges. The worst thing that you can do in a time of turbulence is overreact and make it worse. We could decide that this practice of systems engineering is outdated. We have to throw it all out and start fresh. That would be a tremendous error. We have 60 years having developed this foundation, but what's very important is to recognize just how broad the foundation is. First off, in the last 10 years, we've spent a lot of time harmonizing the foundation. Okay? You used to have so many different standards for systems engineering, EIA 632. DOD or MIL standard 490, 499, ISO 15288. Those now are at least harmonized, as is the Encozy SE handbook. What's important there isn't that you agree with everything that's written down. I'm sure you don't. Nobody does. But we now have a common language, a common lexicon, a common set of processes that help us unify our practice and then talk meaningfully to one another about how we apply and how we evolve. But our basis is more than systems engineering. Certainly, systems engineering is part of our foundation. We recognize this, that as part of our practice. We focus on systems engineering more than the other systems dynamics, systems aspects, because this is, this is the interventional piece. Okay, But the other parts help us understand as well. Systems theory, the general study of systems, the underlying principles, the underlying concepts part of our foundation. 
System science. How did nature solve these problems? What can we learn from the world around us? So many opportunities to apply the natural systems world into the systems that we develop. Systems thinking. This, to me, is the granddaddy of them all. I think if INCOSI were founded today, we probably would not call ourselves the International Council on Systems Engineering. I think we would call ourselves something a little bit broader. Systems thinking is certainly part of what we do. It is the per perspective. It is the holistic part. Systems dynamic also belongs there. The bottom line is we've built up this base of practice over 60 years. It's time to tune it, not discard it. Now, we can't just apply it the way we've applied it before. We have to apply it a little bit differently. We have to make sure that we're dealing with robust, resilient, and holistic architectures. We're dealing with change. We have to be resilient in the face of the change. We have to build in concepts. For example, you can't bolt on security. It can't be an after the fact. Thing. That's what holistic means here. We need to stop resisting change. The old joke of managing requirements is like walking on water. It's easier if it's frozen. Well, that may be true, but that's ostrich in the sand thinking. Okay? We have to embrace that it's happening. And we need to look beyond the requirements that were given back into the problem space. The biggest problems still happen on day one of the program. It's when we misunderstand what the customer wants, what the customer asks for, what the customer needs. We need to make sure that we have the best interpretation of that and help the customer understand the problem. We also need to innovate. During the global downturn of 2011, Jim Collins, the business author, said, ask who, not how. Now this goes a little bit against our engineering nature. When we're given a problem, we tend to try to create new solutions. The better form of innovation is actually to look at those around us and ask, who has solved this problem before? Who can I steal from? Who can I plagiarize? Because plagiarism is the highest compliment. Henri Poincar said, to create consists of making new combinations. The Gutenberg printing press is actually not quite the innovation that we think it was in terms of a new creation. It was the combination of several other creations. That's innovation. So let's not always try to build new. Let's ask who has solved the problem before, even if we're stealing from another domain, and let's apply it to our problem. Well, if it were simply built on our foundation, this would be pretty dull, pretty boring. We would have had a wonderful glass of wine, but that's not very helpful. We need more than that. I think we need to embrace the, embrace the lessons from Lean. Lean is all about value. Now, lean applied traditionally comes out of manufacturing. Very, very precedented systems. You're continuing to do the same thing over and over. You're focused on value. You're eliminating waste. What does that have to do with what we're doing today? Well, we certainly have to be focused on value if time matters and money matters. How can we do that? One of the things that we can do is look at this wonderful guide to lean enablers. This is available on the web. It was developed by INCOSI, the Project Management Institute, which is a project management body in the U.S. and elsewhere around the world, and a little, uh, a little university known as Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Okay? This guide has a tremendous number of best practices identified. I believe it's on the order of 343, if I remember correctly, grouped into sub-practices, grouped into primary practices. 
Not all of them are about systems engineering, but they certainly apply in general. One of the great things in this guide is it gives us a motivation to act. We always have to defend why is systems engineering valuable. Here are a couple studies that show why. This guide draws from more than military practice, but this chart is all about military practice, specifically USDOD. They pulled the 96 largest acquisition programs and looked at cost overrun. And in the engineering side of the house, the average overrun was 42%. In the total program cost, it was about 25%. And I think they picked 96 programs in order to cost average down things like Joint Strike Fighter and most of the big US failures. It would go off the top of the charts otherwise. So in other words, we're not doing very well. But are there programs that do well? Absolutely. And there's correlation across all the indices. These are things that correlate to success. Cost, schedule, quality, learning and change, enterprise strategy alignment. What you find is that the programs do well, do well across the board. You want to be towards this end of the scale where you are exceeding your targets towards 10, by 10 to 30%. High performing programs, they're all up here. They're consistently high performing. Low performing programs are consistently down here, 10% to 20% to 30% worse than they should be. This is a motivation to act. Now you also have here the classic definitions of value. It's what the customer wants. Waste is anything else. Okay, how do we apply that? Here are five key lean enablers that we can use as systems engineers. Okay, map the management and engineering value streams. Eliminate anything that's non-value added. It's tailoring, okay? That's making sure that we're not following the process for the process's sake. We don't have time or money to do that. Ensure upfront that you're going to be able to deliver the program requirements. If it's not possible, don't start. It doesn't help you, it doesn't help the customer. Do a little more upfront at validation. Here's one that we can all salute as systems engineers. Use systems engineering to coordinate and integrate not only, the pro not only the product that we're developing, but the project team itself, all engineering activities in the program. The systems engineering people and functions should be an integration force. We are the hub of the team. We're not the most important people on the team, but we're the communication integration force. Classic lean statement, pull tasks and outputs based on need, reject everything else, it's waste. If you don't need to do it, don't do it. Just because the guide said you should, doesn't mean that it's appropriate for your project. And five, strive for perfect communication, coordination, and collaboration. The better that we can do those three C's, the better our projects will perform. Lean gives us some lessons that we can apply. It did not come out of unprecedented system development, but it can apply to system, unprecedented system development. One more thing from this guide, and I classify this along the lines of keep your friends close and keep your enemies closer, okay? There's this divide between project program managers and systems engineers. 
Why this exists, I don't know. We're both interested in the same fundamental thing, which is delivering the capability that the customer wants. Now, the systems engineers classically focus more on the technical side of the house. The program managers classically focus more on the schedule and the cost. But neither one of us alone is going to get the job done. We need to work together. We need to have better solutions. We need to have a unified front. We're both trying to deliver the solution that meets the customer need. The fundamental recommendation out of this guide is whoever is the ultimate authority on a program needs to understand both program management and, fortunately, systems engineering. Okay? But if we're going to work, let's work together. So build on our foundation. You know, embrace the lessons of lean. If we're dealing with change, what better thing to do than incorporate the insights of Agile? Agile did not actually emerge from software. It emerged from other practices, but we know it in the world of software. And more than anything else, it's a recognition that needs change. And trying to fight against that is foolish. So here's the old way we used to do things. We used to do the waterfall model. Get all the requirements right, pass it down, get all the design right, pass it down, get all the architecture right, pass it down to verification. Now, the question I'll ask you is, who in their organization does waterfall? Okay. You quite, okay, thank you. There's an honest man in the room, two honest men. I ask this question in the States, and no hand goes up in the room. Maybe a little timid, nothing. But it really doesn't go up in the room, and that's fine, because we're all doing spiral, incremental development, incremental delivery, maybe all the way to Agile. I recognize that. I've been around the block a time or two, so I know the question is to ask. Great, you're not doing uh, Waterfall. So who's doing your requirements? Oh, you can find them. They're in the back corner over here. Okay, good, good, good. Where's your architecture group? They're up on the third floor. All right, all right. Design? Well, we don't have space, so they're one building over. Good, good. Test. They're three blocks down. Those guys are weird. All right? And so what we have done is we have taken this old mentality of waterfall and claim we don't do it anymore, and in fact maybe try not to do it, but we embedded it in our organizations. And so fundamentally, it stovepipes what we do. Whether we try to adopt new processes or not, it really constrains us. We're breaking out the requirements from the design, from the architecture, from the test. And we truly need to integrate. Agile gives us an opportunity to do that. We certainly think about Agile from the concept of change. What we don't often think about from Agile is the concept that the team should be an integrated team, including the business champion. So much of Agile comes from co-location and coordination and cooperation as opposed to segregation. There are a number of Agile development principles that have been adopted or adapted for systems engineering. The original software principles have 10 in the software manifesto. This is an extract of the 12 that have been adopted for systems engineering. I'm not going to go through all 12, but I'm going to go through a couple highlights here. The highest priority is to satisfy the customer through early and continuous delivery. Okay? The quicker that we can get value in front of the customer, the better we serve the customer. The other thing that goes on here is the earlier we can get something in front of the customer, the better we can converge on what their ultimate need is. 
Because to be honest with us, most of us don't have a good understanding of what our real problem is. We understand our pain points. We only understand the solution as we see it come together. Welcome changing requirements. Okay, That's a recurring theme here. Even late in development, use it as a competitive advantage. It's going to happen. You can embrace it or you can fight it. As Paul Schreinemacher says, it's Tai Chi management, right? Go with the flow and pass it along. Deliver working software and other system elements frequently. Now this is a lot easier for our software colleagues. You can just press the button and recompile. It's a lot harder when you're bending metal, okay? But we can take that concept to look at inch stones rather than milestones. How frequently can I deliver something that reflects the progress that I'm making? Because the better I pulse, the faster I move. Working software is the primary measure of progress. It's actually not the spec. It's not the model, even in a model-based world. It's something that works. Anything else is a vehicle to get us there if we're being positive. It's a decoy along the route if we're being negative. Let's make sure we understand where we're going. Continuous attention to technical excellence and good design enhances agility. All right. Agile processes done improperly are effectively cowboy coding or cowboy development. There's a lot of work out there in the world that's being stamped with the label of agile that is not agile at all. It's the rejection of all processes. What's agile done well? Those of you who are familiar with agile, particularly Scrum, particularly Sprint Zero or Sprint One, Recognize that the first thing you do in that methodology is establish the middleware. Okay? In systems engineering speak, that's equivalent to establishing the architecture. And then from there, you progressively build upon that architecture. If you've got a good architecture from day one, you can have technical excellence and you can be agile around it. If you don't have the architecture, well, you're in a lot of trouble. Cowboy coding, cowboy development bypasses that architecture altogether. This says if you will have it and you will maintain a focus on technical excellence, you can be more agile, you can be more resilient, you can be more responsive. And this one sounds a whole lot like lean. Simplicity, the art of maximizing the amount of work not done is essential. I was once taught that engineers will walk a mile to avoid doing the same thing twice. We are effectively extremely lazy people, which is wonderful because that's how we innovate. We're trying to avoid doing work not done. That's actually value add. That allows you to spend your time where it needs to be applied. All right. So build upon our foundation, embrace the lessons of lean, Incorporate the insights of Agile. Those are actually quite complimentary if you look at them. Those of you who know me, who heard the introduction, heard four letters. M-B-S-E. I wouldn't be complete if I didn't talk about model-based systems engineering. We have to transform our practice through model-based systems engineering. It's been around for a while. This current incarnation traces its roots back about eight years. We have to push forward. 
Now let's talk about what it is and what it isn't because there are a number of myths here. Classic and cozy chart talking about systems engineering as a practice in transition. There is this traditional piece that we consider document-centric. This is the world in which we worked primarily through specifications. And in fact, specifications are the single source of truth. When there was any debate, when there was any argument, it was resolved in the spec. Now the myth, however, is that models are new. Models aren't new. Models are the way that all engineers think. The difference is, traditionally, maybe that existed on a napkin or on a legal pad, or an Excel spreadsheet, or in a Simulink model. The issue was it was descriptive, it was secondary, it complemented the spec, but it was not actually the single source of truth. So, myth one, models are not new. We need to remember that because it actually eases this transition. To the future, here we want to focus on those models. Myth two, Documents aren't going away anytime soon. In fact, we shouldn't wish that upon ourselves. Documents are a tremendously effective form of communication. You can talk to any number of people who can read and understand a document. All that we're doing in this transformation is changing what's in the foreground and what's in the background. We want to engineer through the models and make that the source of truth and make the document something that we exchange. Okay, something that's driven from that. If you understand that, then you understand this transition, as important as it is, is in some ways less intimidating than, when we, than what we make it to be. What does this look like, by the way? Just so you have a common picture, let's assume that you have an automobile design. Let's assume that we have a 2015 BMW. It can stop at 110 feet, you know, from 60 miles per hour and 110 feet, and we want to change the braking distance. Well, theoretically, we can go in, we can change the performance requirement, we can see how that impacts the system, down in the braking system, into the components, into the fault tree analysis, into all these aspects. At the most primitive level, what we're looking for is actually traceability all the way through, okay, in a model-based sense. If I change this, can you at least focus my energies as an engineer to just the subsystems and the part of the designs that play into this effect? At the more sophisticated level, what we really want to do is actually go into our models, change the number from 110 to 90, and see what breaks. Am I still within the tolerance systems, the performance spec of my braking system? Am I all of a sudden generating too much heat? How am I going to affect the life cycle of the braking system if I'm trying to do this? Different industries are at different levels of maturity. I will tell you that if you're looking for general systems theory, it's a long way out. We can figure out how to connect our models and get good traceability and focus our efforts so that the models do the bookkeeping and the engineers do the innovation. If you're working in a specific vertical that does the same thing over and over again, like automotive, they're actually more mature on this front. They're starting to hook their models together so that they can infer overall system performance from lower level. But that's fundamentally what model-based systems engineering is about. And it gives us a different toolkit. But we need to make sure that we do this in the right context. If we're only interested about ourselves as systems engineers, we're making a huge mistake. 
Huge mistake. Model-based systems engineering is disruptive for us. It changes how we do our jobs. But the rest of the world doesn't care. Our program managers don't really care, and the rest of the engineers don't really care, because we're changing within our boundaries. What's disruptive to the greater world is model-based engineering. Why is that? The rest of the engineering disciplines have already made the transformation. You don't talk about model-based mechanical engineering. You just talk about mechanical engineering, and it's done with models, and they can go direct to manufacturing. You don't talk about model-based component, sorry, integrated circuit design. You can't do it any other way. Again, it's direct manufacturing. We're the ones sitting right up here at the front of the life cycle. If we've got a better way of translating user needs into cohesive system level designs, which then map into those models that the other domains already have, we have the opportunity for a model-based life cycle. Now that's disruptive. The reason that's disruptive is if you have high fidelity transfer down the line, you have high quality because you don't have humans interfering all the time, you have high speed because you don't have humans interfering all the time, and you have better cost. This is what we need to strive for, and we need to make sure that when we do this model-based systems engineering transformation, we do it in the right context, the broader context. The good news is all this transformation has a number of research opportunities that go along with it. Over the last 22 years, we've seen the number of graduate programs in systems engineering grow. When I got my graduate degree, there were a handful of programs in the States. There are now well over 100 universities in the states where you can get a master's degree, many with a PhD, PhD degree, countless more around the world. So we've got more advanced practitioners than ever. We also have a number of research channels that will help us make this transformation. Uh, in the U.S., there's the so-called CERC, the Systems Engineering Research Center, which just received a $60 million five-year grant for research. It's the biggest investment ever made in the States. In Europe, the European Union is investing in it. We have the opportunity to drive these funds to drive our practice forward. When we do so, again, we need to be holistic. We need to have the systems perspective. Yes, there are things that we can do that help us. In a model-based world, you break your data out in a different way. You have the opportunity to actually develop heuristics, to develop aids, to develop wizards, things that help us to do pattern-based engineering. But that's us playing with our own toys in our own sandbox. Our managers, our customers are also looking for things. Let's make sure that we serve them too. How about sensitivity analysis? If I change that requirement from 110 feet to 100 feet, does that fundamentally change anything? How sensitive is my system to the actual performance characteristics? Can I, can I look at a bigger trade space so I can understand how much an additional 10% is gonna cost me, okay? Can I actually get automated assurance of systems integrity? We cannot validate autonomous vehicles using traditional approaches. It won't work. The scale crosses beyond what's possible. When you have multiple autonomous vehicles operating on the roadway, particularly the moment they network, we have to have a different integrity approach taken. So some of this research is about us. 
and is certainly enabled by model-based. Some of this research is actually about our customer and our managers. Okay. Build on our foundation, embrace the lessons of Lean, incorporate the insights of Agile, make the model-based transformation. Number five, begin with the end in mind. Okay. Or, as I really like to say it, less pose, more rows. Okay. Less process-oriented systems engineering and more results-oriented systems engineering. In COSI, in military aerospace in particular, often gets the bad rap, the bad reputation of being process-centric. You talk to us about a system need, we whip out the process. Well, that is a reputation well-deserved, and we need to stop that. We need to put systems thinking and systems engineering back into SC. Process standards. I noted earlier that we finally harmonized things, but we certainly have a little EIA 632, a little 15288, a little MIL, you know, MIL standard 490, a little CMMI. We got plenty of process standards to go around. If you want to talk about interchange of models, interchange of data, can I interest you in a little SysML, a little UPDM, a little IDEF, a little AP233? And when we get to frameworks, we get completely out of control. Can I interest you in a little DODAF? Maybe some MODAF, NAF, DAF, TF, FIAF, Zachman? Pretty much anything that we can put in front of AF we have. <laughs> the problem here is who becomes the tool and who becomes the master? When DODAF first emerged in the US, a very, very common experience was all right, guys, stop all engineering. I need you over here to do the OV1, need you to do the SV1, and we just parceled it out along the team. And then when it was done, we took those documents and we put them on a shelf and we went back to engineering. That is us serving the standard rather than the standard serving us. We can't afford to do that. Now, before you get the thought that I hate standards, that's not true. I actually appreciate the value of standards, but they need to be tailored, and they need to be scaled, and they need to be appropriate. They also need to be timely. We are currently undergoing a transformation to model-based systems engineering. If you try to standardize while you're transforming, you standardize on the current state of the practice, where you are today, not where you need to be. We need to learn as a profession. We need to recognize that we go through periods of divergence. We try new things, and guess what? Some of them fail. And you learn from those. And you go to a convergence cycle, and you repeat. Rinse, lather, repeat. We need the divergence cycles. We need the convergence cycles. And we need to make sure that we standardize on things that work rather than things that we think should work. Don't do it for market advantage, do it for market need. We need to do one other thing. We need to make sure that we tailor. We need to go back to that concept of value from lean. You don't do everything in the systems engineering handbook for a given project. You give what your project needs. If I'm going to put a man in space, then that's one set of requirements. If I'm going to engineer a new cell phone, that's a completely different set of requirements. If one of them resets for five minutes, I'm annoyed, but it's not going to kill me. Okay? 
use different levels of systems engineering where required, tailor. The sixth is a little bit different. The sixth recognizes our role and it recognizes that we see the world differently than anybody else. Doesn't make us better, doesn't make us worse, makes us different and gives us different obligations. In the US, the great thing is we have plenty of systems incidents to talk about. We like talking about healthcare.gov. The $86 million website that cost $576 million to deploy and served, count them, six people on day one. I'm not that bad at math. I can calculate that to about 13 or $14 million per customer. Thank you very much. This is absolutely a systems engineering effort. The problem is people thought it was an IT program. And then you look at everything that truly has to come together. And it's not an IT program. It's a systems integration problem with an overall systems engineering issue. Fine. We can all have a good laugh. We like to laugh at ourselves. Nobody got hurt. How about the Boeing 787? The first incident, the battery incident. That absolutely was a systems incident. Well, Boeing doesn't laugh about this, and whenever I talk, I make sure this slide isn't in here if Boeing's in the audience. It's not all that funny to them, because it cost them millions and millions of dollars as they grounded that fleet of deployed planes, and it cost them even more from a brand perspective. Okay, we're still not too bad because no one's gotten hurt yet. Unfortunately, they did it at Fukushima. Now, we can argue whether we knowingly put those generators in the basement because there was less risk from water coming over the wall than there was earthquake. But the reality is Fukushima happened because we made a bad risk decision or we failed to convince our superiors that they were making a bad risk decision. Either way, the failure is ours. Either we didn't see the risk or we didn't properly voice it. Now we're talking about loss of life, an extreme issue. Well, great news is as humans, we've got a long history of this. Just go to Australia or actually any other continent around the world. We love to move species around, okay? So we're in Australia, we'd like to hunt a little. Why don't we bring over the English hare in 1854? Oh, well, now all of a sudden those things are all over the place. I got an answer for you. Bring over the fox. That'll solve it. Well, we don't have any natural predators for that. So now both of them are running rampant. Or we accidentally bring the cane, the uh, cane beetle over. Great to so bring the cane toad over. But he's poisonous and anything, anything that eats him will die. Okay? Any continent around the world, save Antarctica, has this issue. And by the way, as you introduce new technologies, we have the opportunity to take this to a completely different scale. These are unintended side effects, emergent behaviors if we want to be polite, but these are actually relatively passive compared to what goes wrong or what we could possibly have go wrong in an interconnected world. So what do we do about it? I said we see the world differently. Ultimately, I believe that we are all born with the system's perspective. I think if you look in the eyes of a child and you hear them ask why, they're trying to see the big picture. 
Okay, and then we, at least we in Western education, do the best job we possibly can to train that system's perspective out of them. And for good reason, because we need to become more and more knowledgeable about less and less. That's what allows us to create these wonderful technologies. And so the rest of the world does that. We, for whatever reason, either they weren't successful in training it out of us, and we maintain the system's perspective, or for some reason it got trained back in us. That gives us a special obligation. I think we need to help not only our customers, but all the way up to the so-called C-level, the CEO, the chief, you know, chief executive officer, chief technology officer, chief uh, operating officer. How do we do that? Give you a handful of techniques. We have to drive better solutions through holistic understanding. We have to be the voice of the system's perspective. No one else will. Recognize them for the strengths that they have, which is to work the specialties. Recognize that those specialties work best if they come together in a holistic picture. Highlight the risk of unintended consequences, but don't scare people. Okay? Scare tactics seem to be effective in the short term, but they always backfire on you. We need to highlight what the downside is that other people aren't going to see. What is the risk if the water comes over the wall and those generators are in the basement? Take a lesson from our friends in sales and move the conversation from price and cost, which are short-term measures, to value and ROI. If I go down and I go to buy, an, well, actually I'll take, a, I'll take a lesson that Renee was giving me over the weekend. He walked in, oddly enough his camera had broken when his hand inadvertently hit the camera on the steering wheel. You can ask Renee about that yourself. And he walked in to buy a new camera. He was convinced the model that he wanted and he was going to spend, uh, if I remember right, 1600 Rand. He knew exactly what he was going to get. And the salesperson behind the counter didn't talk about price and cost. Instead, she talked to Renee about the capability that he needed and the experience that he was going to have. She moved it from a very short-term tactical purchasing decision to an experiential one and the quality and the value. Now, we can be rude and say that she was simply upselling him for a profit, and maybe she was. But I can tell you that Renee is very pleased about it because he loves the camera that he has now and knows he would have regretted the other one. What did she do? She moved him from a short-term price perspective to a long-term value perspective. What do our customers focus on? Short-term price. What do we need to focus on? Long-term value. Dispel the old maxim, we don't have time to do it right, but we have time to do it over. We say it all the time, and we keep doing it. We can't afford to do it. We don't have the time to do it. Connect and integrate. <clears throat> this goes back, actually, to one of those agile principles. Systems engineers focus on two things. We're the communication hub within the program, and we focus on integration in our systems. The same is true in our project teams. Let's make sure that we connect our individuals, our organizations, and the technologies. Okay? That is our unique responsibility. Champion and teach the system's perspective every time you have the opportunity. Make sure that we're looking at the problem from a system's perspective. Make sure that we do it in the capabilities and the systems that we're going to deliver. Make sure we do it in portfolio management. 
if we don't have the money as an organization to do everything that we want to do, make sure that we're optimizing the portfolio that we do exercise. Do it across the enterprise. <clears throat> There's an author today by the name of Dan Pink, whose most recent book is called To Sell is Human. It basically argues that in today's information economy, unless you're working with your hands moving earth, then you are in sales. Now that probably made all of us shiver and feel a little dirty, okay? Because <laughs> we're engineers, but the reality is that we're selling. The question is what we're selling. And what Dan argues is we're selling information and we're selling command and we're selling that we understand the problem. When you stand up and you present, what are you trying to do? You're selling your ideas. And so what he says is, in this world, we need to adopt the new ABCs of selling. The old ABCs of selling are from Glengarry Glen Ross, the movie that says, always be closing. That's a pressure-based tactic. It's a fear-based tactic. And it works when you have more information than the other guy. That doesn't happen now. So instead, he says, let's work on attunement, buoyancy, and clarity. Attunement. That's ensuring that I communicate with my audience in a context and a language and a level that is appropriate for my audience. I'm not trying to be deceptive. I'm not changing my message. I'm changing the way I communicate my message so that it can be heard and understood. We absolutely have to do that. I'm going to skip buoyancy for a second and go to clarity. Use words that your audience understands. We're engineers, I'll do this one. Use notations that your audience understands. You might like a SysML diagram, and if it does the job for you, good, great, wonderful, use it. Don't show it to your director unless they have a software background. Okay. Instead, show them a picture, a picture with fuzzy little satellites. Little tanks blowing things up. We like those types of things. <laughs> They're called architoons. I used to be a technical bigot and think they had no value. They got tremendous value. Now, by the same token, don't show that architoon to the software engineer because they'll throw you out of the office. Attune to them and communicate with clarity. Buoyancy is a psychological concept. People tend to gravitate to positive, uplifting forces, believe it or not. Okay, If in bad times you're the individual around the water cooler or around the coffee pot that is just bemoaning how difficult it is and we just got our budget cut and can you believe all the work that we have to do and whatnot and they're not going to listen to you at all. Now you don't have to be Pollyanna and in fact you should not appear ignorant but you do have to simply recognize, hey look guys, we can complain about this, or we can do the best we can under the circumstances. If you are more buoyant, you actually have more influence in an organization. That feeds the last one. In difficult times, in times of change, model the behavior you want to see. Be the example you seek. Serve as a personal model for adaptability, agility, and resilience. Okay. Six steps, six steps for systems engineering in turbulent times. Build on our foundation. We got here for a reason. Don't reject it. Embrace the lessons of lean. Value is critical. Incorporate the insights of agile. We have to be more resilient. We have to be more adaptive. 
We have to be, quite simply, more agile. Transform our practice through model-based systems engineering. It's the only way we can deal with the complexity that we have today and tomorrow, but do it in the framework of model-based engineering because that's what we ultimately have to do. Begin with the end in mind. The end is not the model that we build or the specification that we write. Here's the surprising thing. Paul Logan from Australia taught me the end isn't actually the system that we build either. That is a means to the end. The end for the systems engineer is the value that the customer is seeking and we use the system of interest to get there. Begin with the end in mind. Remember we serve the customer need. And six, recognize our role as a leader. Fasten the seatbelts. It's a turbulent time. It's only going to get more interesting. And for me, here's how. Everything that we've talked about so far is systems engineering. But I tend to think at a different level. I tend to think about how are we going to generate sufficient power? How are we going to get people from point A to point B efficiently? How are we going to generate enough food to feed this planet? Clean water. How are we going to allocate resources? How are we going to allocate access to health care? None of these are systems engineering problems. We would be incredibly arrogant to think they are. All of these are systems challenges. All of these are cases where the inappropriate, poorly thought through application of technology, as good as the technology may be, will have bad unintended consequences. They'll make the problem worse, not better. In the US, let me introduce you to something called the Affordable Health Care Act. It's not that I'm opposed to the general concept, it's that we completely botch the implementation. That's playing on a small scale. These things are on a big scale. Ultimately, I believe we live in the age of systems challenges. The question is, do we live in the age of systems engineering and systems engineers? I will say this in closing. It is a challenging time to be a systems engineer. We're living through the transformation of the practice. That is hard. We have to move from an old way to a new way, and we have to learn the lessons on the path. We're being asked to do more with less. Our problems are getting harder. Our time and schedule budgets are getting tighter. And we're being asked to solve ever more complex problems. It's our time to be a systems engineer. Tell you what, though, it's a great time to be a systems engineer. We have the opportunity to live through the transformation of our practice. One, maybe two generations ever get to do that. We're one of them. We're being asked to do more with less, which, believe it or not, is a tremendous sign of respect. And we're being asked to solve the hardest problems. What better opportunity than to be able to make a difference? So, like I said, strap in. It's going to be a turbulent ride. We're here whether we like it or not. Hopefully we'll make the best of it and adapt and ultimately excel. Thank you.